Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Macworld, November 1992. The Iconoclast by Stephen Levy. A Suit in Time. In 1989, Sheldon Briner had a good idea. He knew that the computer workstation market was growing steadily. It was clear that the users of those machines, which run on powerful RISC microprocessors, would appreciate a wider range of software applications than the meager selection available for the Unix operating systems employed on those workstations. Briner also knew that the best ensemble of software applications going were those written for the Macintosh. Why not, he figured, create software that would allow Macintosh programs to run on the RISC workstations of Sun, Apollo, Silicon Graphics, and IBM? When a good idea arrives in the head of most people, they have a tendency to congratulate themselves, vow to implement it, and soon forget about it. But Sheldon Briner, as Apple Computer was destined to find out, is not your average person. He has conscientiously packed a lot of experience into his 55 years. After earning a doctorate in geophysics at Stanford, he focused his efforts on unearthing such mysteries as knowledge concerning upcoming earthquakes, sunken nuclear submarines, human beings buried in avalanches, and an imposing sculpture of the rain god worshipped by the lost civilization of the ancient Olmec people. Not long after finding the rain god, Briner applied his skills to the world of business, founding a company called Geometrics. Its specialty was locating oil and minerals. When Briner sold the company, he became a rich man. Later he founded other companies, including a not terribly successful artificial intelligence concern. No matter. A longtime resident of Silicon Valley, Briner knew that lightning could strike at least twice. In 1989, he formed Quorum, a software company dedicated to moving Macintosh applications to other computers, whether Apple Computer wanted them there or not. Briner likes risks. He's a seismologist who built a home only yards from the San Andreas Fault, but he is also a person who knows how to minimize those risks. The foundation of that same house is fortified by massive reinforced concrete piers. In starting his new company, he knew he was taking another risk. Apple Computer might try to stop his venture, even though he believed that he was doing Apple, and particularly its developers, a favor by expanding the domain of the Macintosh. So even before Quorum began its design work, Briner retained not one, but two law firms specializing in intellectual property. Then, when it came to choosing the designated genius who would turn Briner's idea into the peculiar reality that is software, he had to find someone who was a certified computer wizard, yet had never as much as crossed the Cupertino city limits, a total blank slate concerning Apple's proprietary code and techniques. He found his man in Martin Chavez, 26, a Harvard BA and Stanford PhD who had already founded a high-tech firm and in his spare time had completed four years of medical school. In 1990, Chavez had a crucial breakthrough. When applications running on the Macintosh go about their business, they send out digital requests from the Macintosh operating system to make certain things happen. Dialog boxes appear, files are saved, and so on. 
Chavez figured out how to interpret those commands to make the same things happen in the Unix operating system of RISC workstations. This scheme, dubbed the Quorum Compatibility Engine, required no use of Apple's much-protected proprietary technology. For instance, when a Mac application asks for something to be drawn on the screen, it requests the Mac operating system to use Apple's patented QuickDraw algorithms to produce the images. The compatibility engine plugs that request into the PostScript-based display system already implemented in workstations, and the screen shows the intended image, without raiding Apple's toolbox. The Quorum lawyers saw the compatibility engine and said it was good. Plans were made to use the engine in two products. The first was Latitude, which would enable Macintosh developers to easily adapt their applications to run on workstations. The second was Equal, which would allow Mac applications to be run on Unix workstations out of the box. Briner envisioned implementing the same principles used in Latitude and Equal in a series of other products that would allow any software to run on any computer. For Briner, this situation would be Nirvana, a multi-spoked wheel of compatibility in which all spokes are connected to Quorum. Letters. They get letters. Assured by his attorneys that he was violating no copyright, Briner initiated discussions with Apple executives in October of 1990. He even hoped that Apple would itself license his company's technology. Eventually, over 50 executives at Apple, including John Scully, viewed early versions of Quorum products. In January 1992, when Quorum publicly announced its products, scheduled to ship later in the year, Briner felt good about his relationship with Apple. When Apple requested an alpha release of the software, so Apple's engineers could examine it, Briner felt it might be a prelude to a deal. Then came an odd letter from Apple Vice President Roger Heinen. Dated February 6, 1992, the letter requested that Quorum send the complete code of latitude to Apple's lawyers. On Valentine's Day, Briner responded with a 24-page white paper detailing how latitude was developed, emphasizing that Quorum's engineers had no access to Apple's proprietary code, and he agreed to allow Apple to examine some of latitude's code. On March 17th, Heinen sent another letter, this one to a Quorum attorney, charging that, quote, Latitude appears to specifically infringe Apple's patents and copyrights. This is evident from a cursory review. The letter continued to say that although the other Quorum product, Equal, was in too nascent a form to evaluate, Apple was convinced that if the product worked, it would do so only by violating Apple's intellectual property rights. Heinen's letter concluded with a dark suggestion that Apple and Quorum meet to see, quote, how Quorum proposed to remedy the various legal issues raised by these products. Quorum's lawyers were glum. Apple's gonna sue you, they told Briner. Even if Apple did not sue, the letter was a potential death warrant for Quorum. The young company, already in the hole to venture capitalists for over a million dollars, was about to seek new funding. It would be illegal to contact investors or potential customers without notifying them of this letter. What sort of idiot would invest in a company seemingly about to be stomped by a giant? Briner, ever the optimist, wondered if there was still room for negotiation, but no one at Apple would return his calls. 
everyone referred him to legal. Then on May 1st, Quorum received a letter from Apple's developer program. Although Quorum had been a certified Apple developer for over a year, the letter cited that your application this year was approved in error. It explained that the program is designed to facilitate the development of products which run on the Macintosh. Neither equal nor latitude fit this description. Therefore, the letter said, Apple was revoking Quorum's status as a developer. Briner had already paid to attend the Apple Developers Conference later that month, but when he showed up at the conference, the folks at Apple barred his entry. So Sue All in all, this seemed to fit the pattern of Apple's behavior when the slightest hint of an intellectual property rights issue arises, a knee-jerk tendency to threaten and to litigate. It seemed that as far as Apple was concerned, the proper response would be for Quorum to roll over and die. But Quorum did not die. You will recall that Briner's business, like his earthquake-resistant house, had been bolstered by prophylactic measures. He knew that Latitude did not infringe on Apple's QuickDraw because it didn't use QuickDraw. It used the display postscript already on the workstations. The code was totally clean. Apparently, the engineering talent at Apple had not been able either to discern this or to convey this to the executives in charge of writing threatening letters. So Briner and Quorum decided to speak to Apple in the one language which the company seemed conversant. They sued. The litigation, filed on May 11th, was officially a request for a declaratory judgment that Quorum's products did not violate Apple's intellectual property rights. But long-time watchers of Apple's liberal use of litigation to achieve its ends saw it for what it was, a rock in David's slingshot. And just as a single rock felled Goliath, this single piece of paper not only changed Apple's attitude, but also ensured there would be no changes in latitude. Apple's attorneys began negotiations for a settlement of the suit within hours of the filing. Within two months, an agreement was indeed signed. Its contents, alas, are confidential. Quorum is permitted to show the agreement to potential business partners. But Quorum's understated press release speaks volumes. Quote, Quorum will continue to develop and market its cross-platform compatibility products without threat of legal action from Apple. Additionally, Quorum will be reinstated in the Apple Certified Developer Program with full privileges. In other words, David won, Goliath Zero. A Moment in Time there are certain moments in history that indicate a significant about-face in the policy of a nation or institution. Those of us who watch Apple hope that the Quorum settlement marks such a sea change. For years, we've been watching Apple harass both competitor and ally. The technology-driven company whose products we adore seemed obsessed with litigation. No longer an underdog, Apple had become the bully of the valley. Needless to say, this attitude did nothing to enhance Apple's popularity. But ironically, the biggest victim of this aggressive legal strategy was Apple itself. As explained by G. Gervais Davis III, a Silicon Valley lawyer, people may say a suit is well and good, but how much time does it take from executives? They might be tied up for three weeks of testimony. Sharp-eared computer history buffs have no doubt just shot straight up in their chairs. 
Jerry Davis? Isn't that the same Jerry Davis that was cited in Bob Cringley's Triumph of the Nerds as being the lawyer who advised Gary and Dorothy Kildall of digital research and CPM fame on their initial meeting with IBM? Why, yes it is. The men from IBM came to this Victorian house in Pacific Grove, California, headquarters of digital research. IBM showed up, got the lawyer to look at the non-disclosure, the lawyer, Jerry Davis, who's still in Monterey, uh, threw up on this non-disclosure. It was uncomfortable for IBM. They weren't used to being waiting. And Apple has just undergone a tediously long and drawn-out battle with Microsoft over whether or not Gates and company violated Apple's rights a fight that, at press time, looks to be a total loss. Who knows how many days of decision-making time has been lost in stuffy deposition rooms? Who knows how many hours of pricey legal talent has been billed to Apple and its shareholders? Ultimately, the price of blind litigation is credibility. In this case, Apple revoked Quorum's developer status, claiming that the reason was that Quorum doesn't make applications that run on the Macintosh. But as explained to me by Kirk Lovner, vice president of Apple's developer group, this is not at all a criterion for exclusion from Apple's fold. Apple is very supportive of companies that create opportunities for developers, he says. Lots of companies whose products aren't specifically Macintosh-based are welcome. Lovner says that Apple's objection to Quorum was not their business, but the way they went about it. Levner told me that unlike during the dark days at Apple, when the company discouraged any Mac developer who considered porting an application to Windows, Apple now welcomed the kinds of cross-platform schemes that Quorum promoted. He noted that, in conjunction with Symantec, Apple was even involved in such a scheme, codenamed Bedrock. Was Apple's reaction to Quorum a blunder then? The company will not answer the question, but its behavior certainly begs for explanation. If Apple didn't believe that Quorum really infringed on its rights, why did an official write a letter charging just that? A letter that, if unchallenged, would have become a death warrant for Quorum. And if Apple did, in fact, believe Quorum's products truly infringed upon Apple's intellectual property rights, why did the company instantly settle the case? Here's a rosy scenario. Apple is finally willing to draw its age of litigation to a close. The settlement is a constructive sign, says Gervais Davis. I think Apple management is getting tired of paying legal fees. Let us hope that this is so. And let us also honor Sheldon Briner. Though his company's actions were purely in the interests of its own survival, the impact of its suit is reminiscent of that of the man who looked Senator Joseph McCarthy in the eye and said, Sir, have you no shame? History records that the vile McCarthy looked away. And let it be noted that when Quorum sued, Apple blinked. In both cases, it was time for new thinking to carry the day. Another possible but unlikely explanation for Apple's behavior is that the Macintosh application environment for Unix systems, MAE, was in the works, shipping in early 1994. Apple could have viewed Quorum's products as competition. MAE was sort of an inverse AUX. Instead of being a complete Unix environment that included macOS, it was a complete macOS environment that ran as an application on top of Solaris and HPUX. In the end, Latitude, Equal, Bedrock, and MAE all failed to make waves in the industry. 
MetroWorks, the Code Warrior people, acquired the Latitude intellectual property in 1997. According to a press release, the Latitude porting libraries will be incorporated in a new product, Code Warrior Latitude. This will allow MetroWorks existing clients to more easily port their existing applications to Rhapsody, since to move one's application to Rhapsody meant rewriting it from scratch, something Microsoft and Adobe were, quite understandably, unwilling to do. So, sort of thankfully, Latitude never served its purpose. Fun fact, did you know that an ex-digital research employee, Lee Lawrenson, also of Ventura Publisher fame, was responsible for the Mac to Win porting library that was used to port, amongst other things, Macromedia Director, Clarisworks, Code Warrior, and Fourth Dimension to Windows? Lee speaking to the Computer History Museum. I knew we were going to write that app on the Macintosh, but I, I said I didn't want to ignore the Windows market. So I, the very first thing that I started working on is well, why don't I write an emulation layer where I take the Mac API? and map it into Windows, because i just done that with the Gem API. So it wasn't that hard to write this Mac to Windows porting layer. And so that we were going to use ourselves for the app we were going to build. But as soon as I wrote that, I said, oh my gosh, there's like an opportunity here because you have all these companies that have Mac applications that want to get to Windows. I knew how different they were. You need two different development teams. It's a huge expense to manage two different development teams. So we started licensing this Mac to Windows technology, and that became a very profitable business as that was Altura's business. Macromedia Director was ported that way. And the very first app that was ported that way was a fractal design painter. And they only knew about the Mac API. They only wanted to write to the Mac API. I said, no, no problem, I'll do the Windows version. And so we built the Mac to Win um, layer to, so that Painter could use it. Probably 1990, every week I would open up Mac Week and if anyone was talking about their Mac application, I would just call them up on the phone and say, hey, do you want to get to Windows? We can get you there in six weeks' time and use the same code base, and here's how it works, and that's how we built the, the now, now tell Mac us. to Win business. 